<laughs> so what does it feel like at Cooper City to actually kind of be welcomed in? And that's the dream. And I just want to remind, you know, the, the dream is not for us to impact, you know, partner with people to reach their God potential. The dream is not found in a person. The dream is found in a vision that God's given us. And it's much bigger than a live person standing on the stage. Um, it's about what God does through us together and all of the different campuses that we have. And that's always my heart's desire, is that we wouldn't come in worship because we like a certain type of music or because we like a certain type of speaking. We would come in worship because what God's called us to be a part of, his church. And remember what Jesus looked at Peter and said. He said, I'm going to build my church upon the proclamation that I am Lord and there's nothing the enemy can do to stop it. And that's what we get to be a part of. Now, we're going to wrap up our series. We've been talking about power. Is it good? Is it evil? Is it a blessing? Is it a curse? And uh, it starts in Genesis. So if you want to pull out that outline that you got when you came in, there's a lot of different scriptures. And so we're going to move pretty quickly through all of this. But I think it's really exciting in an incredible way to kind of wrap up this whole series. So it begins in Genesis. And we could walk through Abraham and, and see the same thing. But I want us to jump quickly, because we don't have a lot of time, to the New Testament. I mean, when I think about the, uh, you know, what it means to be a man of God, I think a lot of Paul. I, I, when I think about someone who understood God, because Paul writes all these uh, doctrinal letters, I think about Paul. But look at what Paul says. He says, the trouble is with me. Let me just read it here. The trouble is for I am too human. A slave to what? Sin. And what is sin? Missing the mark. He says, I am a slave to living an imperfect life. I continue in whatever area you want to talk about. My temper, my finances, my marriage, my dating, myself. I, I, tend, I continue to miss the mark. Uh, the, the, the bullseye. He says... I don't really understand because I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. I know what's right, and I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. I do the complete opposite. Do you sense this battle going on in Paul that I think a lot of us can relate to? He says, I want to do what is good, but I don't. I bet you there are a lot of folks who intended on being here this morning. Whatever campus you're at. They intended on worshiping God. They intended on hearing from God's word. I mean, they had great intentions, but they're not here. Right? They, for whatever reason, they kind of closed the door on that. He says, I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyways. I've discovered this principle of life. That when I want, that what, when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. That's pretty powerful. And I think if we were going to draw that, okay, let me um, draw this for you. I, I think it kind of looks like this, all right? You have kind of these stair steps. And right up here, I know I'm quite the artist, okay, is you have this man, all right, and he is happy. This is a, a man or woman, okay? This is Adam, and Eve before they ate the fruit. This is Noah before he got drunk. This is David before he committed adultery. 
Um, and this is you, all right, and me. All right, this, this, this is us. And then what happens is what Paul talks about there. Is that all of a sudden we do what we don't want to do. What we want to do we don't do. And we lose this, this joy, right? The righteousness that Noah had. The heart for God that David had. Uh, the being able to walk with God in the garden that he created for them that Adam and Eve had. We, we begin to do what we don't want to do, and what we want to do, we don't do. And we, like Adam and Eve, lose this sense of joy. We lose this sense of peace. And we kind of start to go down these stairways if you think about your spiritual life. You, you know, when the first time you do something that you wished you wouldn't have done or that you didn't want to do, you start to wonder what, what will people think about your spiritual life. I mean, you, you declared God's word or you talked about change in your life. Or, and, and then, again, Paul describes this struggle. And then we begin to think, well, what will the church, you know, the folks that I worship with, what will they think? And we continue and think about what, you know, God wouldn't even want to use me. I mean, I, I've screwed up. This is not about whether this is wrong or right. No, no, you know. You know that the words that came out of your mouth, man, this shouldn't happen. The way that you responded in anger at the person that you work with. Or the way you expressed yourself to your spouse or the person you're dating or to your children. Or the attitude that you have. Or the selfishness. I mean, you know, it's not an argument about what's right and wrong. You, like Paul, you, uh, us, you're like, man, there's this principle in my life. That what I, I just inevitably do the opposite of what I truly desire. And when you start walking down that path, what happens? You start to lose the confidence in what God's going to do in your life. You used to believe that God would do great things through you. You used to believe that God was going to bring someone into your life as a, as a spouse, maybe. You used to believe that God was going to give you the opportunity to launch a business. Or you used to believe that God was going to bring someone into your life to, to start a business. I mean, you had all these dreams. And as you continue to, to disappoint yourself in your relationship with God, you lose that confidence. Because you're like, man, why, why would God, I mean, why would God do that? I mean, I, why, why? It, it, Paul says, look at what Paul says in verse 24. Because I think this is the way we feel. I know I have felt like this before. Paul says in Romans 7, 24, Oh, what a miserable person I am. Some translations say, what a wretch I am. I can't do anything right. I mean, I want to. But no matter how bad I want to, I continue to seem to make the wrong decisions. And I tell God, I'll never do it again. And then you know what? There I am on the internet, right? Or there I am, those words spewing out of my mouth. Or there I am, you know, expressing my... I, I, he says, who will free me from this? This life that is dominated by what? Missing the mark. Paul asked a question that I think you and I ask even today. What do you do about this? I mean, how do we get, because this is where I think many of us probably find ourselves maybe today, is we're down here, okay? 
And this person, I don't know if you can see this, but he's not happy. She's, or he is sad. His hands are not in the air. They're kind of down. <laughs> How does this person get back up to where God created them to be? That there are, we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. How do we live that kind of life? How, how do we get from here to here? How do we go from a heart that only thinks of itself to again having the kind of heart that is after God? Now, Romans tells us that there are several ways in which we try to do this. The first way is that we just try to deny that it exists, okay? We try to deny that it, and you can circle the word it in your outline. What is it? It's sin, missing the mark. Let me show you a, a picture that um, my, uh, we have three children, okay, if you don't know. Tyler is our oldest, and he is married to uh, Amber, and they have a puppy, okay? We're hoping for grandkids. Right now they have a puppy. And then we have another son, Carson, uh, who uh, still lives at home. And then we have the youngest in our clan, Bailey. She just turned 16. That doesn't, that's, uh, that's another thing. Anyway, she's an artist. She's, she's always drawn. She hasn't went to art school yet. I keep telling her to. But this is a picture that she drew. I, I, it's weird. I don't know what it all means, okay? You got a head and a brain and all of that going on. And then here's another one that she drew. All right? Got a horse, and it's kind of coming out of all these different shapes and stuff. And, I, I, you know, I'm a proud father, but I would think as you look at that, you'd say, you know what? That's pretty good. That's pretty good for freehand drawing. And, but that's not where she started. Okay, she's 16 now, so let's say about 13 years ago, Steph and I moved into our first home in South Florida. Up to that point, we had lived in a mobile home, you know, a trailer, something that's on wheels. And, um, and now we had an opportunity to move in to a, a house. It had real wood, you know, it didn't have any wheels, and uh, we had been in South Florida, I don't know, Steph, maybe two, three years, something like that. And, you know, so it's our, it's our house. I mean, we were renting it, but it's our house, at least while we're paying the rent. And so we wanted to paint it, you know, make it our own. And it had a big kitchen, and Steph and I went, and we got the paint. And I don't know if you've ever painted, but the problem with painting is if you paint one room, that one room connects to another room. And the room that didn't look so bad, now compared to the good-looking room, looks really bad. And so we spent, like, I don't know, several weeks painting. We used one room to the next room to the next room. And so the kitchen had all these, uh, I think it's like, a, I don't remember, a green color. It was just really pretty. And one night, Steph and I go out to celebrate. Just her and I. No kids. Just me and Steph. And we go out and we're like, yes, we're in a house. We painted our house. It's awesome. And then we come back and we go into the kitchen. And on this beautiful wall that we had painted with our own bare hands, our own paint, you know, scarred or not scarred, but paint all over. And, and now, instead of just our paint, there's magic marker all over the wall. And, yeah, permanent marker all over the wall. And we're like, oh, and it didn't look like these drawings, okay? It was just, and so, you know, Bailey, from the time she was little, always kind of had the markers and the paint and that kind of thing. So we knew who did it. And it was funny, none of the marks were above what she could reach, okay? And so we called Bailey in and we're like, um, Bailey, who messed up 
what me and your mom worked so hard on. And you know what she said? I don't know. I don't know. Who would have done that? And she went from, I don't know who did it, to my brothers. In other words, she just denied it. All the facts were there. It was her magic markers and paint. It was at her height. She was the only one who had any kind of heart or desire for art. And yet she looked at me and said, I don't know. I didn't do it. Doesn't that sound a lot like Adam and Eve? Remember how God responded when, I mean, Adam and Eve responded when God went to him? And God's like, and what was Adam's response? Read it. Adam looks at God. This is what Adam says. He says, you know what, God? He says, you know, that woman. That woman, right? So he blames Eve. I mean, some of you ladies maybe have been married to some guy like that. It's her. And then if that does not enough, he says this. He says, it's that woman that you gave me. I was fine with the donkeys, okay? But you gave me, it sounds just like Bailey, not me. I mean, this is God, Adam. Is, I think the first thing we try to do when we find ourselves here is just deny. It just doesn't exist. I'm a good person, right? I start comparing myself to other people. Oh, I lost my temper, but I didn't lose my temper as bad as this person did. I may be a little selfish, but I'm not as selfish as them. I may watch a little pornography, but, you know, not as much as those people. We, do, we just kind of deny it. And if that doesn't work, we deny that there's no sin at all because there's no God. There can't be sin if there's no God. This is just a, an emotional state. You just need to pull yourself up. And so when we find ourselves here and we find ourselves with a sense of separation and a sense of guilt and a sense of shame and a sense of vulnerability... We want to blame someone else. And if that doesn't work, we just deny its existence. We deny it, sin. And we deny the existence of sin because we deny there's a God. And Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1. And if you've never read that text, I encourage you to do that. Because he talks about all, he talks about sexual sin. A lot of the sexual sin that is least in the media uh, in the United States. I don't know about here in Peru. And he, he just and he lists all these different kinds of sin. And look at what he says in verse 18. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, all missing the mark who, uh, of wicked people who do what? They suppress what? They suppress the truth. So if they suppress the truth, that means you can't suppress something that doesn't exist. Right? You can't push against an imaginary wall. If I'm going to hold something down, if I'm going to suppress something, then there must be something there. And Paul says that what you and I have a tendency to do is that the reality of God, the reality that God has created you and me in this world in His image is that in our wickedness, in our sin, in this sense of guilt and in this sense of shame, we try to suppress the truth. We try to push it down. He says because they know the truth. Now, that's important. Listen, if you ever talk to an atheist or you ever talk to an evolutionist, here's what you've got to know. No matter what their intelligence might be, no matter where they may come from, no matter what even uh, true intellectual arguments they have, here's the reality, according to the Scripture, is that they are suppressing the truth. That within their very existence, they know the truth. 
In other words, to not see God's glory in this world, you have to intentionally suppress, push down, force away. And because that's exactly what the scripture says. So that, I mean, that's good news for you. That doesn't mean that we need, don't need to have intellectual conversations and apologetics. We need to do all of those things. But just understand that God has set it up in your favor. Because there is none of his creation that doesn't know. Because that's what he goes on and says. He says they know the truth about God. Why? Because he's made it obvious to them. Keep going. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God has made, they clearly see his invisible quantities. Remember what I said? What is creation? Creation is there to give image. Of, it's an image of God. It's to, to, to reflect God. For us to see his glory in the creation of this world. That's why that's what atheists and evolutionists, Darwinism, it fights against that. Why? Because that is the very evidence of the truth that there is a God that brings about the reality that when we are separated from him, that there is this sense of loneliness and guilt and shame and uh, vulnerability. I keep going. His eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. And doesn't this sound like our world today? Claiming to be wise, they instead become utter fools. Instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God. They worship idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Through the, the creation of the world. All of these different ancient peoples have suppressed the truth that there is a God. Visibly seen, according to Paul in Romans 1, in the creation. You may, and then he, in, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, well, that's not you. Right? You don't do all. That's not you he's talking about. He says, you may think you can condemn. There's that word again. Condemn such people. But you're just as bad. You, you, you don't have any excuse. He says, when you say they are wicked and should be punished. You are, there's the word again, condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. We try to deny. But here's the reality. As you still wake up every day here. You still wake up every day with this frustration that what you don't want to do is what you do. And every time you do that, you have to deal with the fact that you have missed the mark. And that in that reality, you have hurt people. And that reality, you have hurt yourself. And that reality, you have impacted your children, the person that you're dating, your future. But you and I, like Paul, have to wrestle with this. And so when that doesn't work, when we realize that denying it, I didn't do it. There is no sin because there is no God. When that doesn't work, I think the second thing that I put in your outline that we try to do is that we try to make up for it. And when I say that, what I mean is that we, we try to be good enough. When I was a kid, and, and you know, I'm just a, or I don't know, even before I was in my teen years, I was trying to understand what does it mean to be a God follower? Mom would take us to church. My dad wouldn't go, but my mom did. And I would do something I knew I wasn't supposed to do. I would feel guilty. I would feel this sense of, I have disappointed God. He'll never be able to use me. And what would my church think? What would my family think? You know, just doing something that whatever a kid might do, you know, 
say something not supposed to, maybe watch something late at night you're not supposed to, I don't know. And so what I would do is I would try to make up for it. And here's the way I would do that is my favorite, like, snack was a Little Debbie's um, ho-ho is what it was called, all right? A Little Debbie's Swiss cake. It was chocolate and sugar and cream, and it was awesome. (laughs) Awesome. And so I would say, okay, Troy, bad. And I would throw away the ho-hos. So you can't have any ho-hos, you know. I would try to make myself good. It's kind of like they tell me you guys like these, what is it, uh, Dona, Donna, Dona, Pepe, Peppa, Dona, Peppa. Now, for those of you maybe in the States, I don't know if, if we have these here, but uh, they have something at our campuses that they're going to give away just like I'm. Do you, anybody want one of these? You guys want some of these? I got a whole bunch of these right here. All right. Instead of taking it away from you, all right, I'm going to, I mean, this is awesome, right? It's just like going to the Christmas parade, okay? <laughs> at the campus, they're throwing out real ho-hos or Little Debbie Swiss cakes, okay? Now, isn't that what we all try to do, though? When we screw up, we're like, I'm going to climb back up the steps. I'll show you, God, I can be a good person. I show you, and we talk to the folks around us, I'm going to be good. I'm going to make up for it. I'm going to make you proud. And we do that by trying to keep God's word, trying to keep the commandments, the Ten Commandments. Look at what Romans says. Romans 3.20. Look at it. This is amazing. What are those commandments for? What are the Ten Commandments for? Have you ever thought about that? Okay. He says, for no one can ever be made right with God. You can't get from here to here doing what the law commands. The law, it's the Ten Commandments. You know, it's more than that, but it's the Ten Commandments. So what are the Ten Commandments for? The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Let me show you what I mean. We actually have a scorecard here, all right? Now, I don't have all Ten Commandments. I just have one, two, three, four, five. I don't have every month of your life. I have two months. June... And May. And let's just think about it for a moment. Could we do that at every campus? Just think about it. Have you lied in the last two months? Have, have, you, have you ever, you know, not answered an email telling the person you didn't get it? Have you ever answered the phone and said they're not here when they're right beside you? I mean, have, have, in the last two months, have you, have you ever, have you, have you lied? Have you ever said anything, anything, anything? It wasn't true. Let's say that in May, you didn't. Not one time. You didn't lie one time. You told the truth every time. But you know what? June, it's, it's been a different deal. The winter came and, you know, you've you, you lied six times in the whole month. What about stealing? What about taking something that wasn't yours? Maybe it was something that was free. Right? I mean, they wanted you to take it, or they wouldn't have left sitting out. I mean, it's right there. I mean, didn't see a price tag. Or maybe it was time. They pay you for eight hours or ten hours of work, and you work six and hide for two hours. Right? That, that's stealing. So let's just say, you know, a couple of times, once each month. What about adultery? You say, oh, no, I love my wife. love my husband. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, you've heard it, 
uh, the commandment not to commit adultery. But I say that if you even look at a woman with lust in your eyes, you have committed adultery. Now, it's winter here. Those of you might not realize that. Some of our other campuses, it's winter here in Peru. So we got to, whoo, it's cold, right? So we get to wear our sweaters and our coats. I mean, it's like, what, 72 out there today. It's cold, all right? But in South Florida, it's summer. So let's just, in the last couple of months when you went to the beach and they were wearing what you wear in the summer, did, did you look a little longer than maybe you should have looked? Uh, you didn't in May. But let's say you did in June, all right? <laughs> what about the Sabbath? Do you take a day each week and rest? Colossians says that we need to take a day each week and rest. Focus on God. Allow God to, to work and move in our lives. Let's say just a couple of times did you blow it. What about idols? Put anybody in, in front of God? You know, maybe money, maybe a job, maybe that girl that you've been praying for and she showed up and now she is the focus of all of your life. Again, maybe just a couple. Well, here's what you need to know. The book of James says that if you violate the law in one place, you are guilty of all of it. See, here's what the Ten Commandments are. Not to salvage your life or to save your life, but to reveal to you and I that we can't make up for it. We can't climb the steps. You and I cannot get from where we are to where God actually created us to be. Now, therefore, when you and I wake up to the realization that this is who we are, and if truth be told, we're probably much worse than this, right? We probably all say, whoa, that's just, you know, that's less than 25 sins in two months. We would probably all take that kind of scorecard. But the Bible says that when we awaken to that, well, look what it says in Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. It says, the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. In other words, we couldn't live a perfect life. That's the bullseye. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. In other words, Jesus took the penalty... What's the penalty for this? Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Jesus took this upon himself because he lived a life that never missed the mark. And when you and I accept what Christ has done for us, we are saved from the penalty of sin. In other words, I don't have to worry. I am not going to spend eternity separated from God. That's the penalty for sin. And I am a sinner because I see what my life, uh, my scorecard looks like. So I am saved from the penalty of sin. But here's the reality. And I encourage you, if you're here and you're still trying to get to eternity with Christ by doing good things, to not trust Him. Realize you, you, the law is not there to save you. It's to reveal to you you can't save yourself. But even once you trust Christ... When Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7, all those things, I can't do what I want to do, and what I want to do, I can't do, he was already a Christ follower. See, the reality is, is that there are probably many of us who have been saved from the penalty of sin, but not the power of sin. 
In other words, sin is still pushing you down. You still lose your temper. You still uh, look at things that you should not look, on, look at. You still think about yourself. So how do we overcome not just the penalty of sin and one day the presence of sin, but the power of sin? Because when we're here, here's the way we say it in the U.S. I, I don't know if you guys say this here in Peru or in the Bahamas at our campus there. Is that we're in a spiritual funk, all right? A spiritual funk. And here's what Webster says the word funk, all right, F-U-N-K, means. A cowering fear, a state of great fight or terror to shrink back. And that's where many of us as Christ followers are. We're afraid of what's going on in the world. We shrink back instead of stepping forward and serving and running after God and being who God has created us to be. There's no joy. There's no act of changing the world. God could use you amongst the midst of nine million people that he has reached down and begin to transform into something that he's going to do incredible. No, no, we're crouching in fear. We're shame. We're overridden like Paul. What I don't want to do, I do. And what I want to do, I don't do. So if you can't deny it and you can't fix it by being good enough, then what do you do? And this is where we will end. You have to crucify it. And when I say crucified, here's what I mean. Crucify the power of sin. That which continues to push you down. That which continues to control your life. That which is crouching at your door, trying to take over. That causes us, that pushes us into a release of anger. That pushes us into thoughts only of ourselves. That pushes us into lust or sexual sin. We, we have to crucify it. Look what he says. And you say, well, how do you do that? Romans 8. So now there is. You put it up here. Romans 8. 1. So now there is no what? No condemnation. Let's read this out loud together. All right. If you speak Spanish, you can speak Spanish and I'll speak English. And Pastor Eris can do Portuguese. All right. Here we go. So now there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. That is the reality as a Christ follower. Yes, I said the wrong thing. Yes, I lost my temper. Yes, I allowed the sin that was crouching at my door to leap into my life. But there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. The guilt that I have put upon myself, the vulnerability that I put upon myself, that all comes from the adversary, not from God. Because God says there is no condemnation. I do not condemn you. Why? Because you belong to Him. The power of the life-giving Spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads you to death. So the moment we realize that God doesn't look at me here and say, you really did it this time. You're in big trouble this time, boy. No, no, there's no condemnation. Because he's already paid the price for every sin that I have committed. And so rather than experience the shame, right? And shame is the result of what? Accusation. It's what causes you to lose your joy. What, what, what will my parents think? What will my friends think? What will my church think? What does God think? There's no way I can do great things for God. It's all the result of the accusations. Well, look at Romans 8.1. Look at how it ends that same chapter. He says... 
If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Keep going. Who dares to what? Accuse us whom God has chosen for his own. No one, no one, no one has the authority to point their finger into your life. No one has the authority. Why? Because we are in Christ Jesus. And what God, yeah, give it up for that. So let me give you this and I'll be done. So how do we allow, how do we keep the power of sin from pushing us down? In other words, how do we, and here's what he says, and you can look at all these scriptures, go back. How do we walk in the spirit? What does that mean? Right, we as Christians like to talk about that. Walk in the spirit, live in the spirit. What does that mean? Does that mean you walk around with your hands up? Does that mean you walk around going, hmm? What, 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 what does it mean? Look what he says in Romans 8. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you. Sin, crouching at the door in the car that says, honk your horn. Tell them they're number one. Go, right? The, the sin that causes you to want to look at images that rise lust in your life. Sin, all, he says, you are under no obligation to do what that desire is urging you. For if, here's how you, here we overcome it. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. Your marriage will die. Your dreams will die. Your vision will die. God has created us as conquerors and, let the, and yet the world has pushed the church right here. We're conquerors. We are not to be under the circumstances, but we are to be over the circumstances. We have allowed that sin in our lives to launch into our lives. And as a result, it leads to death. Four, he goes on and says, but if through the power of the spirit, you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will what? You will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. Let me show you how this works. This is the way I think this works. This flashlight is a big baby, and it has batteries. This is the power. We've been talking about power. This is the power that turns the light on, all right? Now, a lot of us live our lives, if I can get the lid back on here. A lot of us live our lives in such a way. <laughs> a lot of us, maybe you guys can. All right. A lot of us live our lives in such a way. The battery's in there, and the connection is made. But we live our lives with the light off. I mean, you get up in the morning, and you think about all the things you have to do. And should there be a challenge, then you turn on, you know, the light, the spirit. Like, okay, God, I need help. I, I'm going to be late. I need you to help me out. God, I feel sick. I need you to heal me. Right? We, we, we live with the power there, but the power off. Here's what it means to walk in the spirit. I don't get up in the morning thinking about what my plans are and, and hoping that then God will step in when I turn it on. No, no. It's I get up in the morning with this idea of where is God leading me? What does God want in my life? In other words, from the very beginning, he's directing me. He's leading me. He's guiding me. It's kind of like an automobile. To make an automobile, you have to hit the gas accelerator and then it gets the gas in the tank, puts it within the carburetor, and produces power. Now, in some places, they have these like uh, trams. 
and they have a little metal rod on the top that's hooked to a wire where electricity is running. And they are constantly and consistently connected to that wire. In other words, the power, they're always connected to the power. They don't hit the accelerator to get the power. They're completely connected to the power. And that's what Jesus said in John. He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. And if you want power in your life, then you remain in me. It says it in two places in the scripture I put there in your outline. So if you and I want to live life victorious, if we want the world to look at us and see that we are not just an emotional being that is only happy when things are going right for us, but that we really are more than conquerors, that we really are overcomers, that we really can walk in the Spirit and overcome the enemy that so badly wants to destroy us, so then living a life of death, we live a life uh, that is alive. Then we just have to walk with Christ and stay connected with him walk each day with an awareness that I am connected to God so how do I interact with my friends how do I interact with my attitude how do I interact it's a constant and consistent awareness of my relationship with him and when I do that I'm victorious and I am no longer here but instead I'm who Christ made me to be I'm victorious. Paul says in Romans 7, we read it. Remember, he says, what a wretched person I am. I'm miserable. Who can save me? And you know what he says in the next verse? He says, there's only one, Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. Your heads bowed and your eyes closed. If you find yourself in this place of defeat, if you've never trusted Christ... That's where it begins. Make him the master, the CEO, the Lord of your life. If you've trusted Christ, then I encourage you to stop living a defeated life. There's no condemnation. I wrote two questions down. Are you in Christ? And are you living in his spirit? If not, why not? And will you make that change today Father I thank you for the truth of your word found all throughout it may your power give us victory in Jesus name amen can you give God a hand